Скільки не стріляй, скільки не питай, триває, життя триває, але воротя, але воротя немає. The song «Війна твоє ім'я». It means the war is your name. Monatic is one of the most famous and influential singers and musicians and music producers in Ukraine. I think he talks to Russian people and to Russia, and to them he says, war is your name. Kirill, glad to have you here today. You are an historian working in Berlin. We have met to talk about the current war in Ukraine. You have followed the war from the beginning and you're very interested in it, right? Interested is not the proper word. I'm devastated by everything that happened in Ukraine from the 24th February on. Uh, I really experience it as probably the biggest personal tragedy of my life. Um, I would say the life is really separated in the time before and the time after the war. May I ask, um, is it uh, that you love Russia and that you are shocked by what your country does or what is your attitude? I left Russia almost 32 years ago. I have a strong developed German cultural identity. I still consider Russia to be my country and I feel myself at home in, let's say, in this space of Russian culture, Russian literature, Russian poetry in particular. So it's, 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 very, it's very difficult to, to, to bear. What do you know about the Russians' uh, way of perceiving the events? How large or small is the consent in the population? You see... Um, overwhelming support for Putin's regime and for, for the war, up to 86%. If someone, let's say a pollster, calls you in the evening, you know how to answer the questions. You know that you have to repeat everything that is considered to be the official opinion of the Russian authorities. There's not much uh, organized collective protest against the war. In the first week, 10,000 of people, maybe 100,000 of people all over uh, Russia protested against the war. This protest was effectively um, suppressed by their authorities. And uh, now I think there are severe consequences. It's just a tiny minority, minority of people who are ready to say something against the war. The most people who don't agree, they just try to flee Russia. Well, there are hundreds of thousands of Russians uh, who, who left the country in the last four weeks and there will be much more that, uh, that follow. Uh, we as Germans, we know a lot about mass consent in a totalitarian regime, historically speaking. Yeah. What would you say are the most important <coughs> changes in the last years that might have led to this insufficient uh, critical attitude in Russia towards the government? Uh, on the one hand, there is a sort of politics of resentment that was proposed to the Russian public. I won't say it is a real well-developed ideology, but it's a kind of strong political emotion. So it was completely fabricated. This narrative goes uh, as follows. Russia used to be a superpower, 
Russian Empire, Soviet Union, it's, they are somehow combined to a sort of continuity. This mighty empire was uh, defeated uh, by the enemies from the outside, by, let's say, the collective West, but also by their enemies from the inside, uh, by the traitors. The collapse of the Soviet Union was presented as a big uh, historical defeat, which was not at all the feeling uh, at that time as Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, nobody was really upset about it. But... Um, the 90s was a rough period in Russian history. People just were disorientated. They didn't find in their place in the new society under new economic uh, circumstances. And uh, they were eager to accept this kind of narrative of the greatness and strength um, of the past. In this narrative, Ukraine is their main enemy. It is the puppet of the West, which was controlled by the U.S. and stands in the way of a real renaissance of the former Russian Empire. From this perspective, the war is nothing but a logical consequence. But on the other hand, there is something more sophisticated. I would say that's this kind of concept of post-modern vagueness. Everybody is lying. Uh, you can't uh, really establish any facts. Well, this politics of post-truth, we are very well acquainted with it. In the West, in the United States, it was also very effective. But I would say that on this field, uh, Russia was pioneer. They really established this way of treating facts and treating the truth long time ago. So nowadays, uh, many Russians really don't want to lose uh, everything they worked uh, so hard for the last 20 years. They are eager or they are ready to accept this narrative that you can really, you don't really know what happens in, in the Ukraine. Uh, both sides are, are lying and maybe it's, uh, it's not only our bad, maybe it's crimes on, on both sides. So that's, that's how many Russians explain to themselves why they, they don't have to say something or to step up or to protest. It's like the Trump method. There are good people on both sides. Yeah, exactly. Or Exa bad things happening on exa both sides. Exactly. That's, that's how many people um, who are in fact hostages of this war start to identify themselves with the hostage taker. It's, well, the classical Stockholm Syndrome well, it has something to do also with a specific state of Russian society. It is an extremely atomized society where it's much better to just uh, live uh, your own private life and uh, not interfere with, with politics. It was a kind of social contract. We don't interfere in your private lives and you stay away of politics. Well, of course, the last 10 years, maybe, there was an opposite tendency that made me believe that a real civil society is growing, is developing itself. The real volunteer movement, many NGOs were established. Political activism became something young people are interested in. But uh, unfortunately, all these positive uh, developments were systematically destroyed and suppressed by the Russian state even before the war. You very well know the leader of the Russian opposition, Alexei Navalny, is in, in prison. All the political activists uh, 
had to decide between prison or immigration. Many uh, human rights organizations, NGOs were also oppressed and really kicked out uh, of Russia. The free press was under attack and it is closed now completely. Well, there is no free press that works from Russia. So Putin prepared this field in advance. I see. These are very, very important uh, tendencies that we find even in our own society. Let's have a look also at Ukraine. Did the Ukrainians, uh, like the Polish, for instance, have this strong aversion against the ex-Soviet Union? Or did they feel uh, like a brother state that wants to be emancipated? In the last 10 years, what attitude do we find in Ukraine towards Russia? Ukraine used to be a very Sovieticized part of Uh, Soviet Union. So there was no big difference in social attitudes, in uh, behavior patterns, etc. But Ukraine really managed to proceed in a different direction. Well, first of all, they managed to keep their democracy. And uh, it's not just Maidan of 2014, but it's also the Orange Revolution of 2004 that was the, the first real show of force of the Ukrainian society. The Ukrainian nation, which used to be very polarized, began to emerge thanks to, to this uh, kind of crisis. It would be one of the effects of this war that all Ukrainians consider themselves now as a united nation and... Russia is, of course, now uh, the mortal enemy. Which are the dangers that you see that cannot be avoided however this, um, this military conflict ends? Only a total collapse uh, of Putin's regime can open the path. But just the change of leadership is not enough. I think the Russians who have a critical view on what happens in their country, they all understand now that Russia has to be completely reinvented so it's also about memory culture that played uh, this ironic and very dangerous joke on, on Russians. They really consider themselves to be the enemies of Nazism. They based their whole uh, memory culture around this victory over Nazi Germany. And they didn't realize that the regime in their own country is a fascist one. So there has to be um, very profound changes. Uh, repentance, of course, towards Ukraine, reparations, all that. There is a lot of work to do. Thank you, Kirill. Kirill Abrosimov about the manufacturing of consent in today's Russia. And yes, there will be a lot to do once the war is over. But Russian tanks are still devastating Ukrainian cities. People still die, are hurt or lose their homes. Oya Kazap is one of them. One moment she stands with both her feet in life, in her profession, with her family, and suddenly she finds herself to be a refugee who needs help from others. Oya, you left Kharkiv on... On March 14th. Uh, tell us more. What happened to you? Uh, well, it was a long way. I left my city on uh, February 28th, so it's just four days after the war started. 
I spent those four days uh, reading the news all the time and just feeling scared. So it was not an easy decision for me to leave Kharkiv because it's really far from European border. It was kind of frightening to cross the whole country. There were already battles everywhere. Some people left by cars, by buses, by trains. I had a friend with her mom who also wanted to leave. We got on the station. It was super crowded. We were not sure if we were going to get on the train, but I guess we were lucky. And we spent um, around 31, 32 hours on the train to Lviv. And it was packed with people, and uh, I don't think I've ever had a trip even relatively close to that one. So I didn't know where exactly I was going, I didn't have a plan, I didn't know even to which country I was going. So first we uh, stayed in Lviv for a night and uh, went to Poland, to Warsaw, because it's closer. I stayed in Bucharest for 10 days, uh, but I was in contact with Amanda, I knew that she uh, was helping many other Ukrainian refugees who had nowhere else to go. I figured she, you know, she's the kind of person who I fully trust. Is still someone there from your family? So my parents, uh, they live in Kharkiv in their house. They are already retired in late 60s. They feel safer when they're home, even if their home is in the city that you know, it's getting more and more destroyed each day. But they also didn't want me to leave. I don't know, it was the hardest decision I ever had to make in my life. Because I knew that if I leave, I might never see them again, you know, for one reason or another. Um, I also have a brother. He stayed just one day longer with his family, but then they also decided to head west. And uh, and what about your job? My job? Um, well, I uh, consulted online. I don't know. For two weeks, I couldn't work at all because I was, well, let's say stressed. Mm. <laughs> uh, I just uh, tried to yeah, do something in places where I happened to be help somebody i received a lot of help myself from sometimes absolutely random people in a way i need to start over again like as a psychologist i i don't think legally i can practice in germany because i need some more specific training here that usually takes years plus i would love to help ukrainian refugees because i don't think they receive enough help at the moment I would like to welcome Amanda Zilic too, who is here today. Um, you have been working until recently in Kharkiv. How did you come back? Um, I taught German literature to third and fourth grade of German. The um, department is based in Kharkiv at the Karazin University. Um, my employer sent me an email two days before Biden said the war will start. I uh, also talked to the head of the department and uh, I told him this is just a safety measurement, don't worry, I'll be back in two weeks. Um, you know, we have to do this, the Americans are already out, the British are out, 
and we are actually the last ones to go. How long have you been living in Ukraine? I started in Kharkiv in 2019, September, yes. Are you worried about your friends who are still there? Um, sure, I'm um, worried about my friends, my students. I taught for two years, I know some of them quite well. And uh, we try to continue to work. Um, we try to keep their minds busy. Um, we try to send them some literature that might, I don't know, make them think or make them, I don't know, think about other things and reply to them. And sometimes it's more like a talk. Do you have recent news from them? Some of my students are in Germany. It makes things easier for them. Uh, if they see me and uh, they trust me and they sometimes just need some information. Um, but other students, male <laughs> students, they cannot leave the country, right? Some of them have been living in the basements. So they have to stay and to fight. They at least have to stay there. Mm -hmm. I don't think... Um, uh, I don't think you can force people to fight. <laughs> for everybody. No. Mm -hmm. Not for yeah. everybody at once, mm -hmm. but uh, all the conscripted have to stay in the country and maybe wait for for their turn. But it's not the problem in the Ukraine. There, there are more people who want to fight this this war than there are actually um, possibilities. And to you know to um, to, to not everybody is uh, is able to enter the the army. Everybody technically is drafted, but. Not everybody has to go and fight right now. And in fact, some people voluntarily, you know, offered their service. But then others were just caught on the streets randomly, like, hey, you go with us and there, fight. So it's sort of chaotic. I have a friend who, several friends who went to territorial defense, like the first days of the war. Some people who are in, in the military, but for many like days or weeks, for example, they didn't actually participate in battles. They were waiting. Different people feel very differently about this. Not everybody is ready to kill, and that's just a fact. Some people, even if they are male, it doesn't mean they have that in them. But they, for example, help in other ways with food. They drive people here and there, like, whatever is needed. Others are hiding because they are afraid of being drafted. The majority who stayed, they um, help one way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, and some managed to get out, but very few, I heard of very few. What did they tell you about their current situation? I haven't been for a while. I've seen only from internet. I know several people, like friends, lost everything because some bombs uh, randomly maybe got into their apartments. For example, um, I, I have I have a friend, it was when I was still in Ukraine, actually, so the first days of war, and he, he posted a video of his apartment building, and there was, like, no front wall at all, and mostly, like, ruins inside. Luckily, he went to shelter... So he, you know, survived. But then it's like half of the building is gone. Another friend of mine told me that just three days after she left with her family, 
the bomb got exactly in like one of their rooms. And while they were leaving, the uh, next building to theirs was on fire. Just two days ago, the street next to where my parents live was also kind of caught on fire and several people were injured, someone died, because apparently something exploded in the sky and then the... uh, fragments here just fell down like in radius of I don't know maybe 500 meters and nobody could see it coming So the story of the song is very interesting. It was recorded like the first or the second day of the war, I think. I was still in Ukraine by a famous Ukrainian singer, a vocalist of the band Boombox. He was touring in the States and he returned to Ukraine because the war started and he wanted, you know, to defend the country. And uh, he recorded it just standing on the street. Just someone, I think, taped him from the phone. He was singing without music and it's written in 1914 and it was like a march for a Ukrainian National Army. He basically made it a song like a hymn of this war because, you know, it was very touching to see him, a musician, returning to his motherland, not escaping, returning and uh, becoming one of the soldiers. So uh, the song is called Oyo Luzi Chervona Kalina. It's a very poetical text too. Yeah, it has a very poetical text. It's, uh, I don't know if you can feel it if you don't know Ukrainian, but I, I would say that, yeah, even if, like, there is a certain energy in this song. And now it's kind of like a symbol of this war. Several days ago, I just recently found out that uh, maybe 15 Ukrainian celebrities recorded it okay. together. Mm-hmm. It, it's like an online version you can see. like every Zoom. From home, yeah, like from home. Everybody recorded their part. I felt like this would be the right music for this podcast. Yes, it is. We are going to hear the collective version at the end of our podcast, One thing I still want to talk about are the refugees. There must be hundreds of thousands coming to Western Europe and also to Germany now. Amanda, you are trying to help. Why? In the 90s, my family, we also had this experience with war and with refugees. My mom, she's from Bosnia-Herzegovina, so former Yugoslavia. When people tell me what they're looking for or where they want to stay, and I think about it, I have some ideas. Sometimes they tell me about their skills, professions, and I have family members who can help maybe with that, for example. Then I match them. And what kind of problems do you encounter? I can tell you a story about my student. She um, needs psychological help. She does not have any health insurance and for that we had to stand in line for a couple of hours. She needed meds 
immediately and we met a guy uh, at the table tennis who helped her. I, right now I have a really pessimistic view <laughs> on the authorities and uh, I argue with them every day just uh, to get benches and tea when it's raining outside or, you know, a roof, tents, you know, because we... The problem is the people inside, they don't think about it. And um, I have to talk to the managers. I have to argue all the time. I have to be aggressive all the time. This is actually not who I am. And um, yeah, this, this kind of really, um, like the emotions I feel towards my country in these particular moments are um, kind of stressful. Would you say that the German bureaucracy is for refugees a kind of second front line in this war? It shouldn't be like that, you know? You, you cannot compare Ukraine in war with, like, Germany without war. I mean, it's insane. It's just insane. I kind of feel sometimes uh, um, with, like, all the stories from the refugees, like, being also disappointed. You have to stand in line for 10 hours. There is no time slots. There is... Nothing. No system. <laughs> There is no system. The question remains, what can be done about it? The uh, average uh, financial aid that people receive here is like 250 euros per month or something. So everybody is in need of jobs. And I would love to help professionally, and especially refugees and other Ukrainians. There is... Many Ukrainians who came to Germany or to other countries knowing nobody. This kind of networking that people like Amanda do, I think it's extremely important because refugees need all sorts of things. I remember the feeling of, you know, anxiety and helplessness that I had when I was in Ukraine, hearing all those explosions, reading news, and it's almost unbearable. I think there is those who are more traumatized because they lost more. And a lot of my colleagues help for free right now. I know that they try, you know, at, at least talk to a person who needs help once, you know, have one session with them uh, to help process this gigantic emotion to give them some techniques for self-regulation. So many individuals help, but the public support is insufficient? You know, we don't want to seem ungrateful because not every country, when it's attacked, receives so much support from the world. Let's be honest. And we could be, you know, those people who try to escape, but, you know, They're not even allowed to cross the border. Um, and I received a lot of help, as well as many other people. But I would say that um, we need to cover our basic needs at first. And basic needs are yeah, like security, so you have a place. And uh, when that level is covered, then, of course, you want to feel... Um, in, you know, kind of in control of your life again. For me, it was very, very strange to acknowledge that, oh, I am a refugee now. I need help from people who don't owe me anything. When I always wanted to be the one who helps others, you know, not the one who asks for help. And it's like an identity crisis. And then, of course, we all really want to feel strong and effective 
and useful again. And I, I, I'm, by this, I mean we want to find a way to not just survive and somehow function in this new place, but become a part of this society, you know, have our own place, have our own role. There is many different kinds of help. So those who have... Uh, who have ability to keep to um, help financially? You can always donate money to many different organizations who do that, or directly, you know, help someone with even temporary housing. Uh, if you speak languages, you can be translator. Maybe do that. If you have clothes, you don't need. Just bring it to the centers. Uh, if uh, you are a professional who can provide refugees with services for free or at least, you know, with some sort of discount, please do that. Or you just help someone integrate. Maybe you get a new co-worker who's from Ukraine and, you know, for whom it's really hard to adapt. You know, you just could be there for them. You know, we all handle things differently and have different resources. So... Um, Whatever you can do and you want to do, just, just do it. Let me close our conversation with this invitation to everyone to help refugees. I want to thank you all, Olya Kazab, Kirill Abrosimov and Amanda Zilic today. My name is Tino Brömme. We want to continue this podcast against war, propaganda, nationalism and militarization. And here is the collective version of this famous anti-war song, O you Lucy Chernova Kalina. Thank you for listening. O you Lucy Chernova Kalina, ochlilasya, chogos nasha slavna Ukraina zajurilasya, a my tuju Chernova Kalinu pidimemo. A my našu slavnu Ukrajinu he, he, razveselimo. Oju luzi červona kalina pohlilasja, čogoš naša slavna Ukrajina zažurilasja. A my tuju červonu kalinu pidimemo. A my našu slavnu Ukrajinu Hej, hej, rozveselimo Oj, u luzi červona kalina Pohlila se Čovoš naša slavna Ukrajina Zažuri